Welcome to Cinemascope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to Cinemascope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to Cinemascope today. Real everybody, I'm Pete Wright, and that there's Andy Nelson. Good eye. And we spoil movies tonight in the show. We're kicking off a little series we like to call This Is Real Life, Jack. Talking about some of our favorite true stories. First up, the story of the Australian role in Apollo 11. It's Rob Sitch's 2000 film, The Dish. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you think the world's a basketball, then you'd better stir the dish and get ready for The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, since Games Master Stephen Smart is busy readjusting the azimuth to track his own location, I'm here to fill you in this week. The movie was Joel Schumacher's 2002 film Bad Company, starring Anthony Hopkins and Chris Rock. Two great tastes that taste great together. This week's winner was at per 76, so congrats once again. You're entered to win the 2016 Pony Prize. You know, uh, first of all, can't believe you said that about the tastes thing. That was weird. (laughs) (laughs) Second, Anthony Hopkins. Ooh, Westworld, baby. Oh, Oh, wait. I uh, don't have anything to say about that. You don't see that. Uh, I can't believe you didn't get HBO just to see this stinking thing, just because we just interviewed just now. I don't have any more just to say, but we just interviewed Paul Cameron. I know. Andy. I'm going to make it up to him here in just a second. 
All right, I look forward to that. We do have a little bit of follow-up from our friend. Remember our new Swedish friend? Oh, yes. Johan Weylander wrote us uh, again, and thank you so much for uh, for writing. Uh, Johan, we're grateful to hear from you, and you were uh, applauding our interest in the new Morton Tildum film, and you recommended a Norwegian film that we have to go see. You say you must go back to the Norwegian film that cleared the path for him to direct the imitation game Headhunters from 2011. He says, go watch the trailer or preferably just take my word for it and see the film instantly. Uh, Maybe it's on American Netflix. So the trailer doesn't spoil a lot of the magnificent action sequences starring Axel Henney, who later went on to star as one of Matt Damon's space comrades in The Martian, and Nikolai Koster-Waldau, Jamie Lannister, in Game of Thrones. This is maybe, this is where he drops the, he slaps us with the uh, proverbial glove. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. This is maybe... The greatest action thriller made in the last 10 years. Ooh. Big words. And so I'm very excited about seeing this film now. I am too. And I will say it is on Netflix and I have added it to my queue and I'm very excited to put it on, but I'm... I'm uh, knee deep in in uh, The Walking Dead, so I've got to catch up with that, and then I will uh, jump in and watch Headhunters. It's time. Let's do some trailers. Uh, my trailer this week is actually a teaser, uh, but it's so fitting because we did just talk to Paul Cameron. It is the teaser for Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. That was drama. I I bring the drama. You sure do. (laughs) Or I bring some form of drama. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yes, this is number five in the pirate franchise. And, uh, you know, it's it's a teaser. It gives you a little dose of some excitement, some energy, something interesting happening. You get uh, some uh, creepy pirates uh, in there. You get um, some ghosts. You get uh, uh, threats against Jack Sparrow. All sorts of great stuff. This is, of course, um, another round with Johnny Depp and the return of Orlando Bloom as Will Turner. And then, of course, the trailer really focuses on the incredibly creepy Captain Salazar, played by Javier Bardem. And uh, there's something really creepy about him. Uh, The Pirates movies have certainly had some really interesting antagonists throughout. He looks to be another uh, fresh take on what you can do with ghosts in a pirate movie. (laughs) 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 <laughs> with his kind of floating dead face that he's got. Uh, it's incredibly kind of creepy and off-putting, but uh, I'm excited. It looks interesting. It's nice to see them doing something else with the franchise. I really kind of uh, struggled with the original trilogy. I know a lot of people love it. Um, for me, I think it just kind of went into kind of a really bizarre realm, and I just I had a struggle going along with the ride. So I skipped the fourth one, um, but I am really curious about this one, and so I, I'm, I'm, I may actually go back and kind of um, spend some time with the fourth one before I uh, go see this one. I'm, I'm curious to see how it ends up doing, because this one ended up having just a ton of uh, production woes trying to get made, and pre-production and development I mean, they were they started developing this one before On Stranger Tides actually was released, and then just with uh, you know their concern that Johnny Depp wasn't uh, as big and able to carry big blockbusters after uh, Lone Ranger, uh, and uh, struggles with the, trying to find the right story, and a whole just a rotating uh, a rotating door of directors coming in and out. Uh, it's taken a good number of years. 
Um, and now it's the Norwegian film duo Joachim Ronning and Espen Sandberg, maybe I got those right, who are directing this one. And it, uh, yeah, Jeff Nathanson ended up coming in to write it. I'm really curious. I'm very curious to see uh, what they do with the story now that they're not locked into the trilogy, kind of like the previous one. So maybe this will be uh, worth checking out. It definitely looks interesting. So kudos, Paul. And uh, what do you think? Well, you know, I'm I'm uh, dubious. I'm interested in it only now because of Paul. Because you know, and I I think the trailer you get to see a little bit of the darkness, but you know, the other films kind of dabbled in darkness too. And so I'm I, I'm nervous for it because now I have some skin in the game. Right now, I feel like we know the guy and we're excited about him being successful. And yet, man, number four was terrible. Uh, and and for this kind of, I I was hoping, I guess, for more of a reboot. My goodness, after you know, so Stranger Tides comes out, and then poor Johnny Depp. I mean, just like Dark Shadows and Lone Ranger and Transcendence and Into the Woods and goodness, Mordecai. Uh, you know, we did have Black Mass uh, after that, but, you know, there was a string of films that were just not great. Uh, hey, don't put Into the Woods in that list, buddy. No, 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 you're right. And I'm a big fan of Into the Woods. He was the low point in Into the Woods for me, <laughs> the very, very low point. And, and so, um, uh, you know, I, I'm nervous for this film. I, I was hoping, I guess, for more of a flush than just uh, directorial and, 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 you know, photography uh talent uh, on this film. I, I was looking for more of a flush and to see, you know, what else can we do with, with the, the universe? Everybody else is doing the universe. What can we do with the universe? And maybe get rid of some of the, the you know, old characters, Barbosa and even Jack Sparrow. Let's, let's see what else happens. Get Orlando Bloom out of there. Let's just churn some people through. And see what a new world looks like. I think that's uh, actually really interesting. I would love to see them do that. But of course, you know, these are things that franchises are built upon. So I'm curious to see how they they fit Jack Sparrow and uh, Will Turner back into this story with Salazar. Uh, I'm really curious to see how the whole thing works. Um, Also, Paul McCartney is um, has a little cameo in it, I guess, uh, considering they had. Uh, some Stones action before. Now it's time to get the Beatles action in there. <laughs> right. It's more of a beboppy kind of a Pirates movie. <laughs> They've just been on a long, for me, a long sort of decline over the last, since 2003 and, and The Curse of the Black Pearl, which I quite enjoyed. And uh, I think they set up a fun universe on a really wonky premise of uh, just sort of another Disney, let's take a video game and make a movie, or a, a ride, a, a, theme, park a ride. theme park ride and make a um, a, a movie out of it. I, I, dubious premise, and yet I, I think it was fun, uh, and none of them have really met uh, met that standard for me. And by number four, it had fallen so so far. It might as well have been a different a different series. Well, but I mean that would be kind of what you'd be looking for something that would fall far from uh, the the you know original story. Right? Yeah, well, that's so, what I want. I just mean it, it's it's you know in terms of you just want it to quality, fall far, but be good. I'd like it to fall <laughs> far. So far, it's next to another really talented tree. How about that? <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds good. This is, of course, a big uh, uh, blockbuster tentpole opening next uh, summer. It's going to be Memorial Day weekend, May 26th, 2017, here in the U.S. Andy, my trailer is, oh, geez, it's kind of a downer. Uh, it is this, mm. it's, it's Christine. It's called Christine. It is the story of the uh, television news reporter Christine Chubbuck uh, and her uh, long journey, long descent into depression about the state of media 
uh, in the news media in particular in the 1970s and her eventual on-air suicide. Uh, it is interesting for a number of, of reasons, this film. Uh, first of all, a cast I'm very excited about. Uh, I really love Rebecca Hall, who's going to be playing the title character, and Michael C. Hall, uh, who is uh, playing a, a, another producer character, uh, introduces her to the world. It is directed by Antonio Campos. I don't know a lot that he has done. After School, Simon Killer, and then Christine... Uh, this is that that's all that I know of him. He's done a couple of shorts before that. Did you ever heard of him? I haven't heard of him, um, but I have seen a movie he produced, Martha Marcy May Marlene. Oh, yes. But yeah, I haven't heard of any of the stuff that he has directed. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I love Rebecca Hall. I'm really curious about this, uh, this story. This is one of those uh, stories that uh, you've heard about people hear about, but it's not one that uh, I really looked into. It wasn't something I learned about in school. It's just kind of, you know, uh, by word of mouth sort of thing. And it certainly was something that uh, I found very interesting. It's one of those things that I'm like, why did they take so long to tell the story? It seems like the sort of thing they would gravitate to. So I'm really curious to see uh, what Campos does with this story, um, knowing that it's a period film. It's obviously a very uh, difficult uh, story. It doesn't end positively. Um, how are they going to tell this in a compelling way for a film? First time screenwriter Craig Shilowich. Uh, is up for this one. He has produced a number of things, uh, none that I have seen. Which again, I'm I'm disappointed. This looks like a really interesting, um, interesting film. A, a tough one to watch, I imagine. Um, you know, particularly as we're more and more familiar with the story. But I saw this trailer and I looked at our uh, flick chart number one, Andy. And mm. uh, it's I find it very interesting. Of course, we're talking about Patty Chayefsky's uh, network. Uh, which really is a very similar uh, similar story, and uh, that actually came out during the period that this was happening or had happened in uh, in the real life. So um, interesting. Maybe that was a function of why it took quite so long to get this one produced. Should be interesting. The other, I think, uh, footnote about why this is interesting, this film in particular, is that it is one of the very uh, rare. I I say really sadly. Uh, stories of a videoed, like a, a high-profile video or, or filmed death scene on air uh, that has never been seen after it happened, right? They, they cut to a movie when it happened, and then nobody has seen the footage since. Um, and so uh, that's an interesting thing, and it makes it kind of even more mysterious and, and maybe sadly compelling. Yeah, it sounded like uh, the... The uh, I was the station manager or somebody um, kind of kept the footage locked away, and then when he passed away, went to his wife, and now they've passed it off to a law firm that's kind of keeping it under lock and key, so no one ever sees it again. Right? But apparently, it does still exist somewhere, spurring lots of uh, lots of thought about what it you know, what it is, what it looks like, which is kind of disturbing. But you know, it it is really interesting to uh, um, pick that trailer uh, considering our series. Yeah, so, that's right. Another tell that story. Another true story. I'm sure I planned that. Mm -hmm. uh, this one, uh, it, it already played at Sundance this year uh, in, uh, in January. Uh, it has, and it did a number of festivals around the world leading up to its wider release uh, in the U.S. Hopefully soon. It's still in festivals, I think the Mill Valley, Chicago and Mill Valley Film Festivals, October 15th. So be on the lookout for, uh, for a wider release of this film. I don't have an exact date. Uh, of wide release. Maybe October 14th, that's the one that is listed as no film festival 
in IMDb. <laughs> so I'm I'm hoping that's the one. So be on the lookout for it. Looks pretty good. Excellent, Andy. Cool. It's the science minister. Now who's on for another devil on horseback? Parks Australia had the only dish on Earth capable of broadcasting the moonwalk. Huh? The moonwalk? Ah. What's it doing in the middle of a sheep paddock? Never had a mission of this importance fallen to a more unlikely group of local officials... Michael McIntyre! ...and engineers. With a few short hours to landing... We feel confident that we have the expertise to complete our role. ...the world riveted to their TVs and immortality within their grasp... You'll be able to hear Armstrong talking to Houston? Just by hitting a couple of buttons there. The unthinkable happened. The Dish, Andy, uh, 2000. This is a comedy drama history film, uh, and it uh, was directed by Rob Sitch and written by Santo Chilaro, Tom Gleisner, Jane Kennedy, and Rob Sitch. And they uh, are telling the story of the Australian role in the Apollo 11 moon landing. And if you are like me, you didn't know that Australia had a role in the Apollo 11 moon landing, nor did you know it was so charming. Here, here. I saw this movie actually in the theaters when it came out uh, in 2000. It was a a limited art house release, but uh, the audience just loved it. Like you, I had no idea that this was a thing. And uh, I had such a great time watching this movie. It's just, it's very, uh, it's just a simple movie. It's just a beautifully told story of something that really happened that was a key part of something that is much bigger. But it's uh, it's done in such a way that you find this incredible connection with the humans that were involved in this story just to just to kind of be a cog in this great big machine as it's kind of cranking trying to get uh, get man to the moon. And this was our, our, our little connection that helped us actually have the video feed so that we could all uh, see it and be inspired and amazed by uh, what these astronauts achieved so i just fell in love with this movie and i've loved it ever since so here we are this was this was a first for me uh, as it turns out and i i can't believe i missed it i can't believe i missed it mostly because i love the castle which was uh, an, another film that this team did and it has one of the very funniest courtroom scenes that i've seen in courtrooms uh, it is just delightful, a, a story of a guy who falls so in love with his house, his little piece of junk house that uh, he goes to court to keep it when a, a big, uh, a big when the state comes to try and take his property to uh, for an air for the airfield. Uh, it is just hysterical, and uh, so I, I I'm. I saw this film and I read what it was about and I thought, I, I wonder if they're going to be as just sort of ribald and ridiculous as they were in, in the castle. And it turns out they were absolutely not. It was such a simple story, simple humor. As you say, it was a very human story. It wasn't gushy or mushy. It was uh, it, it was smart. Uh, it it demonstrated clear camaraderie around failure and this sweet, just sort of lightweight romance that that just felt good. Uh, Ebert's review, I thought, was wonderful because he talks about how you know comedies are evolving and and have evolved, and the fact that you know he sees more vulgar comedies and laughs hard at them uh, is is okay. Like, it's okay to to love and laugh at these things that are, are even more ribald and not quite so sweet. But this film, 
with those films, you never walk out feeling quite as good. This is a this really is a genuine feel good film until you read the Amazon reviews and then you just get mad. <laughs> oh dear! You had the opportunity to talk with one of the members of the Working Dog Gang and one of the writers, Tom Gleisner. Uh, how did that call go? You know, it was a it was a fascinating uh, chance to chat with somebody who was kind of really. Uh, involved in the in the conception and all of the decisions that went into telling the story, and this is something that you and I have talked about quite a bit on this show. In in uh, any episode where we're talking about a movie that is based on something that really happened, where do the filmmakers kind of draw that line as far as uh, you know deciding to stick with the facts versus deciding to fictionalize something? It certainly was something that uh, I was curious about in the case of uh, this particular story. So let's start with Tom answering that very question. Um, I, I think if, you, if you're going to uh, base a story on um, true facts, I think you're under an obligation to to not mess with anything that would be regarded as a as a key or critical um, part of the story because I just think that that's wrong. Um, uh, obviously, you can combine characters. Um, we reduced, I think, the number of people who were working at the radio telescope um, back in '69 was probably 20 or 30 people. Well, our budget didn't extend to that, so they were reduced to a skeleton crew of about four or five. That that sort of license, I think, is, is perfectly acceptable. But I, I don't think you can um, say turn around and, and rewrite key elements of a story. There was obviously a lot of uh, variety of characters we had. There were some critical characters we had that were working at the dish itself. We had a lot of townspeople, the mayor and his wife and his family. We had just a, a variety of other uh, quirky characters that we got to meet. Uh, where was the line as far as did you stick with, okay, let's make sure we stick to the facts with kind of the, the as much as we can with the guys who are working at the dish and then the townspeople we can kind of play with and like the, for example, the guy I'm thinking of is the is the military uh, uh, boy who's kind of always, you know, coming up to the mayor and wants to date his daughter and everything. Yeah, we could muck around with the um, the townspeople because that was pure fiction. Sure. And as I mentioned, sometimes the, the budget can force your hand a little bit. I, I'm fairly certain from memory NASA sent out a, a, a team, you know, you know four or five uh, people to oversee things. Well, we reduced that team to one person um, because it just it made for uh, cleaner storytelling lines. Something that, uh, you know, poking around on the internet, I found a few people who seem a little up in arms about how uh, the film kind of disregards, I, I think it's called Honeysuckle Creek Tracking Station. Uh, as <laughs> you've, far as... you've stumbled across, you've stumbled across <laughs> the controversy. Yes, short, shortly after the... And we were... We were very much aware of this, that there were two radio telescopes in, in Australia, can you believe it, um, both standing by to, uh, to receive and transmit the, uh, the television pictures from the moon. Uh, and it wasn't, and it's never been entirely clear w- which of them got the, uh, got the pictures first. Um, from our reading, we, we feel it was Parks, which is what we base the story on, um, but uh, as you've alluded to, uh, the, uh, some of the scientists at Honeysuckle Creek uh, felt uh, a degree of umbrage that uh, that we'd overlooked their contribution. There's a couple different websites. One I found was, uh, you know, The Truth About the Dish. And it kind of goes <laughs> <laughs> goes through all the, the truth about honeysuckles part. And then there's another uh, site that seemed to 
uh, talk about how no, no Parks was really where it all was. So it definitely seems that uh, there are still two sides uh, of this story that uh, have not ever come to an agreement. There is a serious side that uh, in in that I I can I can understand um, anyone who was actually involved in in a historical incident that is turned into a film, uh, and you're watching it, and you're thinking, gee, that is a total misrepresentation of the facts. I think you've got a right to be aggrieved in, in the case of the dish, as I say. I think we, we did our due diligence and, and our research told us that Parks was the, uh, was the, um, radio telescope responsible for the, for the pictures, and we, you know, are happy to stand by that. But I, I do think as, as filmmakers, you, you are, um, you do owe a, a duty to the truth. It is a tussle you find yourself in creatively because, of course, you want to stay true to the facts. But yes, you, you need to make an entertaining, um, story and, and a, and a flow. And, um, as I say, yes, as long as you don't go start messing with the, the key facts of the piece. Um, I think you have the right to, you know, create a, an amalgamation of several people into one character or, you know, uh, have, have a few small dramatic embellishments that may not have happened, but as, I, as long as they don't um, mess with the, uh, the major parts of the story. Now this film it looks like it did pretty well for you guys. I mean, it was, uh, from what I saw, it was the, uh, the top grossing film of 2000 down in Australia. So I think that's definitely saying that not only uh, did uh, you guys make a great film, but it certainly piqued people's curiosity. And, and uh, I think people must have been quite excited to actually see this story. Is that your, the sense of it from the time? Yes, I think, I th- I think that is true. It's, um, it's curious in, in filmmaking how uh, your release date can, can often be so important um, I, from memory, the dish came out a month or so after the Sydney Olympic Games. So I think Australia was at that point riding high on a you know sense of national pride, uh, having you know uh, carried off a, a you know a successful Olympic Games. And um, so I think uh, the, the film you know just uh, was a continuation of that uh, warm international glow. Well, I certainly remember seeing it in a theatrical release here in the U.S. when it came out. So um, obviously it was getting enough of a word to kind of be uh, spread about a bit as far as uh, global recognition. So do you recall, uh, and can you divulge, uh, what the budget was? Like, do you have a sense as to, like, how much you guys ended up spending on, on this film? Look, I can't remember, remember precisely. We actually funded it ourselves. Um, so it was a, so I can tell you it was a, a limited budget. Um, uh, in fact, if, if I'll give you a quick plot of history, we, we, the dish was the first film we wrote, um, but being un, untested filmmakers, we couldn't convince anyone here in Australia to invest in it. Um, in fact, one, one of the major uh, film distributors told us that no one would be interested in a story that happened 40 years ago, <laughs> 30 oh, years geez. ago. I'm thinking, okay, sure. So obviously the Titanic's not going to resonate. Right. But um, <laughs> we, so we, we, put the, we put the dish aside and went and wrote uh, a more modest uh, budgeted film called The Castle, which uh, we, we made about three or four years earlier. And that, that proved to be, well, it was our first film, but it proved to be enormously successful. So we were able to... Uh, uh, take basically a profits from the castle and put them into um, into making the dish. Uh, the biggest the biggest um, uh, I guess step for us was to make sure that the radio telescope upon which the film is based still existed and and still looked much as it did in 1969. Um, and you know to our great relief, the, the thing hasn't changed at all. 
um, because uh, uh, our budget was so limited. There was no way we were going to go out and make a you know three-quarter size scale model of it. It it, uh, it had to be there, or we couldn't have made the film. And I, I think we had to shift one. There was one small building that had been or the hut that had been constructed at the base, which we managed to get moved uh, for a week or two, and uh, we were therefore able to make the film. Fantastic. You, you obviously had a lot of uh, access to it. I mean, they were moving the dish around for you guys and, uh, and uh, you know, just able to get your actors actually working on top of it and everything. I mean, it's uh, amazing the access that you guys ended up having for this. We had to go right to the top. I think we got uh, uh, some support from the Minister for Science at the time, who um, I think a Spanish team of astronomers was uh, was asked to take a, a long weekend so we could get in there and film. We, I think they gave us two weeks. At the uh, um, at the facility, which was so, it was um, uh, a question of moving very quickly. Um, in fact, that, that's that's a hallmark of, of the way we've always made film and television. Uh, I, I guess under a degree of uh, restrictions, we we only had two weeks of the dish. We also only had Sam Neill, uh, who starred in the film, um, and was very keen to do it, but like had about five minutes off between. Gosh, I think he just made. Bicentennial Man or something, and he was about to head off prob- probably another Jurassic Park or something in the in the wings. So um, <laughs> you know, once again, Sam Sam said, "Look, I'd love to do it, but I I can only give you you know X number of days." So we uh, we moved in in a very very sort of organised and methodical way, shot what, what we needed to at the dish, shot shot the scenes with Sam, and and got on with it. Up here in the states, we've got certain areas that uh, that have tax incentives. Um, certain states have tax incentives, and I always hear how Australia is like this this wonderful place for filmmakers, and uh, as far as incentives to get films made and everything. I know you guys said you funded it yourselves. Does that? I mean, is that part of like through the whatever? I'm not sure what the organization is, the Australia Film Institute or anything like that. Or do they help you guys out doing these things, or how does that work? No, we 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 receive no government assistance um, via those schemes for making the dish. Um, I think Australia's attractiveness, certainly to the the US, uh, comes when the when the dollar sort of drops below a certain uh, amount. So we we'll often find Australia can be sort of uh, inundated with American crews uh, because the, the the US dollar you know can be so strong. And then, of course, the, the markets change, and and suddenly everything, all the studios are empty again. So we, uh, it's interesting to observe that. But no, we we weren't um, the beneficiaries of any sort of a tax scheme from memory. The biggest challenge, I, I guess, for us was the, the fact that it was a period piece set in 1969, and we we didn't realise just how expensive um, making a period piece can be. Uh, uh, we wanted to film a couple of scenes in the, in the streets of Parks, which is the town where the uh, the dish is located. And to our uh, dismay, when we when we went there, they had something of a of a makeover in the 1980s and the, and the very modern parking meters and and buildings, and it really was never going to play. Um, you know, with with our sort of budget, there was no way we could dress the street to look like it was 1969. So we had to find a a nearby town about um, about 50 miles up the road, a place called Forbes, F-O-R-B-E-S, um, and we shot the, the street scenes in Forbes because it, it looked more like a, a 1969 town. Um, but then during the filming, the people of Parks learned that 
that the rival town of Forbes was being used as a streetscape. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we, were, we found ourselves in the midst of a, a political storm at that point. We? So in the end, to placate everyone, we had to have a simultaneous premiere of the film, um, uh, one in Parks and one in Forbes, so that uh, uh, noses weren't sort of put further out of joint. So the, so the mayor of Parks was so excited at the time that he was the one who got to have uh, Parks on the map helping Apollo 11. And then the mayor of Forbes exactly. is the one who gets uh, gets the glory for having you guys film the story in his town. That's, exa- that's exactly right. In fact, in fact, there is a scene, for those who can be bothered free trying, I think there's a scene in in one of the um, one of the street scenes where if you look very closely in the, in the background, we, um, we failed to cover a, a sign saying Forbes. So even though it's supposed to be in, in the township of Parks, I think... Uh, there was only so much we could do, but as I, as I mentioned, the um, the strictures of of doing a period piece are, are quite fascinating. Uh, uh, you know, you're obviously anyone who makes a, a period film uh, waits for the for the um, to be caught out that oh, hang on, they didn't have that in 1969, or that that word would not have been used in 1969, and we almost blew it. There's a scene where I think Sam Neill's character. Um, Picks up a pencil uh, to make some notes uh, one one evening in the uh, radio telescope, and the pencil had a computer barcode on it, um, <laughs> which was definitely not a 1969 um, phenomena. But luckily, we had a very very uh, sharp eyed continuity person who picked it up on about the second take, so we, we were able to reshoot it uh, without the uh, without the offending code. And then, of course, you guys uh, lucked out. It sounded like NASA uh, didn't have the uh, the budget to ship all of their gear back. So it sounded like you guys got to use all the actual gear that uh, these guys were using at the time. We did, indeed, where it was all sort of sitting in a warehouse somewhere. Um, but we we recreated it um, down in Melbourne, the interior of the dish, because, as I mentioned, we only had two weeks or you know, eight days access to the dish, so we had to shoot all the key exterior scenes there and then uh, recreate the control room um, closer to home so we were able to film at a slightly more leisurely pace. Well, Tom, you've uh, been very uh, gracious with your time today. I appreciate you uh, chatting with me a little bit about this for our show. And uh, you, you guys working on anything new and exciting up there? Um, look, we've got a, um, an animated series which is coming to Netflix. Um was just mentioned the other day in Variety. I saw it's called Pacific Heat. A little bit of a change of pace, but um, we've never we've never done a, an animated series before, so we've uh, uh, just embarked on that. Uh, so yeah, that'll be around about December of this year, I think, uh, on on Netflix over your way. Um, you can look out for Pacific Heat. Perfect. Looking forward to that. Well, again, Tom, thank you so much, and uh, best of luck to you guys down there. Good on you. Nice to talk to you, Andy. What a fantastic guy to take time to talk to the likes of you, Andy. <laughs> a little old he me. He treated you with uh, with uh, uh, respect far beyond your station. Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. So thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Uh, this is, uh, as we said in the beginning, this was written, this was a collective thing. You know, when we talk about Working Dog and the Working Dog gang, I imagine them as kind of a, a studio Leica, right? Where you have a bunch of guys, a bunch of people in the studio who all work together to make movies, right? Yeah. It's just like uh, they go to the office, all of them together, and they're going to make movies. Or it's like Pixar. Yeah, it's totally that sort of group, uh, this this uh, this group of these people who've kind of come together. I mean, they, they went to school together. They really kind of have been following each other and working with each other since then. And they seem to be really tuned in to uh, how to 
tell the the stories that they want to tell together, whether it's TV shows or movies. And I, I really enjoy uh, that they kind of um, jump back and forth, especially, you know, I brought up in the interview how it didn't seem like the sort of thing that, uh, that they would naturally be drawn to based on some of the TV shows that they had done. But it was just, you know, looking for an interesting thing. And here they hit upon this. And I think what, what this group did, especially because they are, uh, they do a lot of comedy sort of stuff, is they were able to tap into just kind of that natural humor of of people and how people are. And you definitely see that with the interaction of uh, everybody in this film. And just kind of, you get this sense that these are real people, that this, even though a lot of the characters are fictionalized or kind of combined, they all feel 100% real. I, you know, what? I, one of the things I love about their approach is that it lampoons their relationship with America, right? With, but it does it in such a gentle way that you can't help but walk away smiling. Uh, this doesn't feel like an Australian picture to me. It feels very much like a, a, a film of the globe. And, and part of that, I think, is so much their touch on the humanity, their ability to capture so many different personalities all rolled up into one character uh, that sort of is representative of many different many different people uh and and to do so with just a, a very delicate uh touch and expertise i loved it it is nice having the different uh the different ways that people work together whether it's you know the the person who feels like oh these these u.s bigwigs are oh they're here to treat us like a peck of galahs or, <laughs> or or the or kind of the the person who's just a lot more calm and and kind of looking at the situation, and I really enjoyed the way that uh, the American that's in this particular situation is really—he's not pushy. He's just there. He's uh, you know just doing his job. He's—they're—they're uh, they're all really just focused on on achieving things and making sure things are done right. And I think one of the moments that I, I like so much in this film is after all of these people who work at the dish uh, are so panicked that they've lost the the. Um, uh, the Apollo 11, um, which is floating around somewhere up in space, um, Al, after they find it and everything's okay and they get it back online, Al says, you know, it would have been okay if we just told them. They're always screwing up. It's the nature of this this industry and it's okay and people just work things out. It would have been fine. And it's like, that's such an interesting perspective because you go through this huge panic about, oh, we're, you know, we're the, we're the buffoons who have lost the, the shuttle or lost the, the um, Apollo 11. And here, here he is just kind of saying, no, 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 it's okay. We're all screwing up. Even in the U.S., this whole NASA thing that we have going on, we're making as many mistakes as you are because this whole space thing, this is pretty new. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah, me too. I absolutely love it. I, you know, and that was actually one thing I'd read the backgrounder on this film, and particularly the some of the frustration about where the original story, the real story, sort of diverges from the cinematic story. And and this was one point that I, I found myself sort of pre frustrated about. How are they going to handle the fact that there was no power outage? Uh, and I, I'm not sure. Did that imply they didn't lose? The uh, Apollo 11 in real life, do you know? You know, I don't know. And that's, I guess, one of those questions about, uh, you know, were they just adding some um, extra tension? Yeah. Um, I did find some great websites, like I had mentioned uh, to uh, to Tom, uh, The Truth About the Dish and this other website uh, that's more kind of from the NASA perspective. And 
it's interesting looking at everybody's perspectives on all of that. And I'll have to kind of poke around on the websites a little bit and see if they actually did lose the uh, the lunar yeah. uh, module. Because the way I read it, the way I read it and then saw the movie, I read it as if they say we did not actually lose the Apollo 11 module. We didn't lose it. And that was added as part of this. We blew a fuse and the whole town lost fuel. That was added for dramatic effect. And you know what? As a As a... A dramatic beat in the film, it works really well. But the payoff where you get Patrick Warburton's speech uh, that you just described uh, is so heartwarming and so touching that it's worth it for me. And and this is kind of that line of you know where are you telling the truth in a situation? Where are you going to fictionalize it? And I think that's an instance where okay, it might have been fiction to have this whole power outage just to create some dramatic tension for the film. But it allows for us to have those moments that that give us a, a better sense of this world that we're living in. Because if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have had a chance to have a conversation about NASA and the mistakes NASA makes. We've already talked a little bit about Rob Sitch uh, and uh, as uh, stepping in as director. Sounds really like any one of them could have, have come in as director. Um, what's your sense of his role? Yeah, I forgot to ask Tom, or I should I should have asked him. So, how do you guys pick? Did you flip a coin to see who's going to direct the, direct this award? <laughs> Uh, no, I think um, I think Rob brought a great humanity to it. You know, he did find the humanity, I and mean, we've already talked about this. this. These guys all conceived this story, and and created these wonderful characters. But obviously, the director is the one who's kind of sitting there and getting the actors to read their lines and really finding the way to deliver everything that's really kind of connects the audience to the story. And I think he did an incredible job. I mean, I, all of these performances are just so authentic from the smallest supporting character all the way up through uh, Sam Neill. I mean, I, I think he does a great job of um, just telling a compelling story here. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, just the way the thing was structured, I only have one complaint, and, and it really is a script complaint, uh, which we'll get into, but his overall sensibility with the film, the tone of the film, and really ratcheting down the lampoon vibe of these characters, which are really easy to lampoon, right? Both yeah. the Americans, and to have a guy like like uh, Warburton uh, in this role, who is known for his ability to do this uh, as an actor, uh, I, I think they they played it. They just let the story tell the story. They didn't really let these these characters get away with themselves, and I, I think that was fantastic. This was a, this was a series of characters that uh, that, like you said, they could have been very easily lampooned. But like, I mean, you see things like uh, the the mayor of the town and how every time he's telling his a joke, his wife happens to walk up and give away the punchline and spoil. It. it could have turned into something so much bigger, but it was just a nice little character moment, and, and it lets it be that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about first shot, last shot, shall we? Absolutely. First shot, wide landscape. We uh, we pan left, there's a car in the distance, dissolves in as we get closer and closer until we meet uh, old uh, our friend Sam Neill, and he steps out of the car. And when you say old Sam Neill, you mean, I mean Sam Neill in age yeah, makeup. Yeah, and I mean really old <laughs> Sam Neill. Uh, I, I will restrain right now. But man, did right, he look right. terrible. <laughs> Jeez. And then the last shot, it's the aerial of the dish uh, as uh, after old Sam Neill has hopped in his car and is driving away. Yes, he is. So this the, the first and last shot represent my big complaint, my central complaint about this film that I think we did not need 
I agree. Yes, it, it's it's a framing device. We get this framing device of 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 Cliff Buxton now much later in his life as he's driving up and kind of visiting the site, looks at the dish, reminisces about the whole story that we have, and uh, then of course a guard comes in and kind of boots him out, and that's it. Not, I, I don't know. It was just it wasn't necessary other than to kind of create that. Uh, that instant sense of nostalgia, I guess, is what they were trying to do here. I guess. But, you know, you just imagine. Imagine that same wide landscape, that same pan left car in the distance with the same dissolves that gets closer. And that, you know what? The car parks. And you know who gets out? Sam Neill. And you know where he goes? Into work. <laughs> right? I mean, wh- uh. what did we get out of that framing device a- apart from... Old Sam Neill in terrible age makeup being accosted by a teenager. It didn't work uh, for me. That's the the one thing about it that uh, I struggled with. It is a framing device, and it could have easily been cut out. And it is our first shot, last shot, just kind of, I guess in a way, just kind of setting up the, the, the sense of nostalgia and looking back for this particular story. But as we've both said, wasn't necessary. Sam Neill specifically is a character, an actor that we both know, I think, pretty well. We've seen him in a lot of things. He plays a wonderful elder statesman and the straight man for so much of the craziness that goes on in the uh, in the dish. He's just uh, great here, and the, there's a great sense of his character having uh, lost his wife. The way that they play that and just the little nuggets you get until he finally talks a little bit more about it, I just really like. I like how he uh, kind of responds to things and, and reacts to things or doesn't react to things. How uh, He pulls out his pipe. Everything about what he's doing here I think is just uh, just right on, and it's a, it's a Sam Neill that I really enjoy. It's definitely different than the big Sam Neill in the Jurassic Park. Yeah. Looking at the the late 80s, early 90s, I mean... Oh, the piano. I, like everything yeah. until the end of the world. Memoirs of an Invisible Man, the piano, Jurassic Park, sirens in the mouth of madness, uh, you know, just in lots and lots of things that I was watching. He had done, he had just done Bicentennial Man, uh, he just finished shooting Bicentennial Man and came to this uh, in the break between Bicentennial Man and shooting Jurassic Park 3. There were a number of other kind of films in there, uh, some TV films, uh, voice work, but really those were the two big films that you already mentioned in the in the interview. I thought that was an interesting bit of timing. Yeah, it's uh, certainly a, a variety of stories that he was telling right around then. And this was definitely the smaller one, yeah. and I can see why he would jump on something like this. It was, I know it was a small window of time that they uh, managed to squeeze him in, but... Um, Boy, am I glad that he ended up being in this because he just fits. He really seems to just be uh, a, a, the type of actor who should be in a story like this. Other actors that should be in a story like this. How about Kevin Harrington as Mitch? Oh, he's good. He's, he's the uh, um, sort of surly, if there's such a thing of surly, surly and sarcastic uh, uh, engineer working <laughs> in this uh, in the dish. Uh, it, you know, I uh, the rest of these actors, only one other, uh, there are a couple of others on the list that I know uh, something of their work. I don't know anything of Kevin Harrington's work, but I love this story that Kevin Harrington and Rob Sitch were sitting in the very same classroom at the very same primary school watching the Apollo 11 moon landing together when they were kids and they did not know each other. And then they end up meeting each other and doing this film together 30 years later. That that is fantastic. That is just craziness, and it's a fantastic story. It's just one of those weird yeah. things. Like, how does that happen? But there it is. Yeah, there it is. 
There it is. He was fantastic. Uh, this is he and Sam Neill are part of the trio of the Australian engineers, uh, rounded out by Tom Long playing Glenn Latham, uh, who is the young, um, awkward scientific genius uh, programmer who uh, we meet both through his. Uh, expert relationship with numbers in the very beginning as he corrects NASA's uh, mathematics uh, around their, uh, their, I guess, longitude, latitude, latitude, uh, you know, their, all of their, their metrics, their math, and, and they had calculated it all incorrectly for the Northern Hemisphere, but they're in the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> and so he went and ended up embarrassing uh, embarrassing the team because he just fixed it. He just didn't want anybody to <laughs> to be embarrassed about it. I thought that was great. It was great, and of course, his, his, as as great as he is with his numbers, uh, you know, he's equally as awkward with the women. And his uh, the the wonderful relationship he has with Janine is just uh, it's just you know it's just so sweet. It's so sweet because she is equally awkward. She may have a better time, uh, you know, handling her budding relationship with him. Than she does certainly when she gets behind the wheel. She's just a disaster in the car, and uh, I love that. That's her thing. She can't drive, and he can't talk to women. But he's great at. It. She can talk to men, but she can't drive. Anyway, yeah. I just love their whole complex calculus. There, it was great. Fantastic. Uh, uh, we do know Patrick Warburton, however, as Al. He he was the NASA representative, Al Burnett. and uh, it was so strange to see him playing so straight yeah isn't it great it's like there's something about seeing him doing this that it just is so not what you expect from him in you know the emperor's new groove or seinfeld or anything else that he's done where he has that really kind of he uses his voice to such a great end to kind of um just create this really laconic sense of humor um and here it's just He's a straight man, and he just does it so naturally and so nicely, and it's fantastic. Yeah, it really showcases him as a talent. This is a guy that can go from NASA engineer to the tick and and play them both absolutely just perfectly. I think he's he is incredibly talented. I was so gratified to see him in this role, and you know, it's it sort of saddens me that I look at his you know, his upcoming stuff. It's just, you know, more family guy, uh, Lemony Snicket uh, voice in the TV series and uh, Animal Crackers playing Brock, another voice character. And because he has such a great voice, but my goodness, give this guy a chance to act more. Absolutely. He really should be in just uh, just about anything because he's great yeah. to see. The Sweet Village Idiot character uh, is played by Tyler Kane as Rudy Kellerman. And Rudy is in such a great position. This is a guy who is... Sue takes his job super seriously uh, as the guard to the dish. My favorite bit is finding out that uh, he is uh, Janine's brother, and that moment where he like kind of acknowledges <laughs> he's not going to. He, he'll let her go. Doesn't have to get her to sign in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, her sign in authorized. Don't tell mom she'll come take my gun. <laughs> It's just a great bit, but he's full of great bits. From that one to, uh, you know, when he brings the food over from the party and just sits there and looks at it until Sam Neill says, do you, do you want some? Oh, yeah, thanks. I'm really hungry. <laughs> you know, my favorite bit is when he thinks he's talking to Neil Armstrong over the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, is that you? That was a wonderful thing. So, they, 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 well, explain that scene. It's, it's I mean, they're they're faking it because this is when, of course, they have uh, lost, the moon, lost the whole mission. They've lost the ship, 
and they can't find it. And of course, that's the exact moment that the U.S. ambassador comes to visit. And so Ross and Glenn sneak off to the other room to, uh, to no, it's it's Al, right? Ross and Al sneak off to the other yeah. room to pretend they are up there in space, or and they're you know communicating with uh, with Houston. And uh, while the U.S. ambassador listens in, and of course, they're just using their own radios. And of course, Rudy is there happening to listen in and thinks that he is actually hearing and talking to Neil Armstrong over his walkie talkie. Uh, he was he was a treat every time he was on screen. He was and he was always brought in at just the right places. You know how they used him in the script, I think, was really smart because every time we'd get into just dipping our toes into a serious moment, you know, when these characters are in a space of particular vulnerability, when they're frustrated with their relationship with the Americans, when they're scared about how they're going to rebuild uh, all of this code to be able to find the the ship again. There was Rudy. He would yell something from the distance. Uh, who goes there was a common kind of refrain. And and he would break the tension uh, in just the right way. And I think it just allows you uh, as the viewer to to maintain a steady sense of emotional connection without too many, you know, extreme highs or extreme lows. And it, it, it was just really smart. Yeah, he, he works great in this film. Uh, Roy Billing as Mayor Robert Bob McIntyre. Uh, he is uh, head of uh, his his family and the town. I already said how much I enjoyed his relationship with his wife, May, and just the fact that they create this relationship between the two where every time he's about to uh, deliver a punchline to one of his jokes, his wife happens to walk up and, uh, and spoils it. With, and then, like, interrupts casually with the spoiler, and then, oh, would you guys like some tea or whatever it is? Uh, it's like a perfect way to develop that relationship. But he's just so great as this as this guy who's you know trying to make something of his town, this little town, Parks, in the middle of Australia, and uh, it, you know here he is, all of a sudden, the center of attention. He's got this U.S. ambassador here, and the prime minister is coming by, and and just all of that stuff. And and he's a, a character who could have just gone completely silly but they treat him like a real human being who's just got you know he's just he's another person and he's got funny things about him but he's also just a kind of a good leader making these choices he did you recognize him when you saw him in the film he's been in a bunch of stuff oh he's a busy man yeah i mean he's still working too got 120 credits listed on imdb i mean rabbit poof fence who's in uh um uh the Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, he's just, he, this is a guy who's in a lot of things. And I didn't recognize him, but he's one of those those guys, you know? Yeah, there are a couple of those guys in here, but none, uh, well, and we should talk about his assistant. Uh, Andrew S. Gilbert plays Len Purvis. Uh, again, if only to talk about how this character is used in the script. And he is, uh, he's a comedic foil for Roy Billing, for, for the mayor, um, and such a sycophant, a foul-mouthed, incredibly foul-mouthed sycophant. Uh, whenever, uh, you know, Bob leaves a sort of open-ended question, you know why we'll do that, don't you? He answers his assistant, Len, uh, with just an absolutely foul-mouthed tirade about why, you know, he may do it. He's totally wrong every time. He's wrong every time. Uh, but it, it's, uh, it, it's a fantastic uh, pairing, fantastic character. In terms of faces that we recognize, Linka Kripach. Yes, indeed. And yeah, it's so funny because I did not even realize who she was until I was looking at IMDb. Yeah, and I saw- she she plays, of course, the daughter. Right. She's the mayor's daughter, and she's really sour and very much into her uh, sort of militant 
uh, agenda. Yes, which is fantastic. Right? It's it's yes, definitely she's a teenager. Definitely a trope that we've seen in films before, but it's done well here. And uh, but the best bit, she's in Moneyball, but she's not really in Moneyball. <laughs> it took a whole team of experts to track this down. <laughs> No, it's it's so funny because I was like, wait, she's in Moneyball? And you're like, no, no, no. She's, it says she's on the soundtrack. And then I'm looking at the soundtrack and it says, oh, she's the, she wrote the song The Show. And I'm like, wait, she's that Lenka? <laughs> she's that Lenka. Yeah. Amazing how, what, how a last name will just throw you completely off. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's Lenka Cher's, last, Cher's last name? Lenka. They never throw that at us. <laughs> <laughs> but Lenka Kripach is actually Lenka, and she is in this film, and she's fantastic as this surly teenager. I really, I, I adored her in this film. She was great, and uh, she has her male suitor, uh, who is in the, uh, he's, he's um, uh, what, what did you call it? What's the, the Australian US army? kind of compared? Yeah, he's Australian, but he's he's more like ROTC, right? I mean, he's... Yeah, he's I don't know what that is, because uh, he's just... Almost army. Right, yeah. Or is he just kind of, yeah, gearing up for it? Uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure, but I, yeah, I know what you're saying. But he was fantastic, always trying to kind of um, um, to get with her, may have a connection with with Marie, and and she just stomped on him every single time, and he kept coming back. It was just delightful, so Very really fun. great. Bill Brown plays the prime minister, and he's just a he's just a fierce, uh, great prime minister. He's a huge uh, Australian Shakespeare actor, um, and he was. But also on the flip side, he played King Arthur in the Australian production of Spamalot. So it's great that he's kind of getting both <laughs> sides of that in there. And he was in Fierce Creatures, which I uh, thought was such a fun movie. So um, yeah. another actor who has done quite a number of things. So it was nice to see him here. And then finally, sadly, John McMartin as U.S. Ambassador Howard. Again, talk about a, a prolific straight man. He's so good. Uh, I mean, geez, I mean, he was in All the President's Men, a movie we talked about ages ago. Um, yeah. And uh, he's great here as the U.S. ambassador. And again, going back to that scene where he thinks he's talking to Neil Armstrong or hearing Neil Armstrong talking to Houston over the radio. I mean, that's such a, a cute little moment that he has there. And that character, you know, I can imagine him for the rest of his life thinking, wow, I actually had a chance to listen to Neil Armstrong without ever knowing that he was <laughs> listening to those guys in the back room. Oh, it's just so funny. Uh, so, I mean, he's just one of those character actors who's just great. Yeah. My the the best moment for me though, and I actually had to stop and slack you about this in the middle of the movie because I I was weeping, I was <laughs> laughing so hard. They're they're playing this party to welcome the U.S. ambassador, right? And the only band that they have playing is like it's like the high school rock band or something. Right. And they're they're playing some jazz tunes, they're playing some standard kind of fare that that uh, they they were very excited that they uh, had learned a new tune by James Hendrix. Uh, which it, it was a great little comic moment, but but the the bit is that the organizer, the the woman who's organizing the thing, says you have to learn the American national anthem. And they said the American national anthem. What? She said you have forty eight hours to learn the American national anthem, and then we go on with the film. We come back. The ambassador arrives. Everything is going really well. It's just great. And then, please everybody, would you please stay upstanding? As we play the American National Anthem, and when the band cuts into the Hawaii Five-O theme song, <laughs> I about lost it. I lost it. It was brilliant. That was an absolutely wonderful turn uh, and a great use of music. And maybe I was just in the mood. I don't know. 
but it was it was a treat. And and I bring it up now because this is where John McMartin really excels. His face was so <laughs> stoic and so warm as he held his hand over his heart during the Hawaii Five-O theme song. <laughs> well, then he's got the great line, sometimes I wish it was our national anthem. Yeah. <laughs> It was a perfect bit, and a, just really where this this film excels. So great, great stuff. He was great. He was a busy man all the way up to the end of his career, uh, which did end uh, just actually this past July when he passed away. Great loss. Uh, film uh, cinematography by Graham Wood. Anything of note by the good Graham Wood? I, no, I, I think it looked great. I thought uh, that Graham did a fine job of capturing the look of this film. It had a, it, it didn't um, feel like they needed to go sepia tone or anything to kind of make it feel like the '60s or anything. It just, it just had a nice feel to it. And I think that pairs both with him and then the production design, uh, Kerry Kennedy and and Ben Morrison. I think they all did a great job, along with Kitty Stuckey for costumes. I mean, they they really helped create this uh, this whole world. Yeah, they really did, and and to the point where they really surprised people who uh, actually worked in these places and got a chance to walk through the set of just how accurate uh, this place looked, even if it it wasn't completely staffed, if it was, you know, if they compressed some dramatic elements of the film, it sure did look of uh, of a piece with the time. So. And certainly, you know, like I mentioned in the interview, I mean, it was great that they actually had access to some of these actual uh, devices that NASA left behind uh, to kind yeah. of fill in the gaps. So uh, all in all, I mean, it feels really authentic. I thought they did a great job here. We've got to talk about the music. Uh, I already brought up Hawaii Five O, which is a central high point in the film, <laughs> but I know you have more to say. The music is great in this film. Edmund Choi uh, composed the music. Uh, it's a really sweet score. I really enjoyed just the feel of it. It it uh, it works nicely. It captures the uh, the the vibe and everything, uh, paired with just a fantastic uh, score. But uh, yeah, I thought Edmund Choi did a really great job of creating the this the, all kind of the overall uh, musical world here. The the montage of moving the dish the first time we see the dish move set to classical gas mm. Mason Williams classical gas was uh, I I thought really uh, energetic and compelling and mysterious all at once I thought it was great but uh, the the soundtrack I've been listening to it all day I mean Russell Morris Steppenwolf the loved ones Moody Blues um, uh, Peter Sullivan band it, it's just a great great mix. It's, it's one that you can listen to all the way through. The nice thing about it is they put all of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra stuff on there, too. It's, it's a beautiful score. That's fantastic. I'm going to have yeah. to pick that one up. Any awards, Andy? Yeah, speaking of the music, uh, this uh, you know, did, uh, did well. It won at, for the ARIA Music Award, the Best Original Soundtrack Album. Um, it was nominated for an Australian Film Institute Original Score and Best Film. Didn't win. Um, but then for the Film Critics Circle of Australia Awards, it ended up winning for Best Original Screenplay. And again, Edmund Choi won for Best Musical Score, uh, tying with uh, uh, Cesare Skubizewski for Bootmen. I'm totally butchering that name, but uh, it was a tie for the Best Musical Score. Um, the film also was nominated by the Film Critics Circle of Australia for uh, Best Film, Best uh, Male Actor, Sam Neill, Best Supporting Male Actor, Roy Billing, Best Supporting Actor, uh, Female, Genevieve Mui, Best Director, Rob Sitch, Best Cinematography, Graham Wood, and Best Editing, Jill Bilcock. So it definitely was a, a top contender of the year for them. And it performed well in 2000 uh, for the Australian film industry, yes? 
Oh, yes, it did. As I uh, mentioned in the interview earlier, this was the number one film at the Australian box office in 2000. Uh, So they did a great job of capturing the attention of everybody there. It opened October 19th. 2000. Um, The unfortunate thing is I really couldn't find any actual budget information and Tom didn't have a lot of budget information to say other than this was a self-funded film. They didn't have a lot of money. They just kind of used what they could. So um, yeah, that's that. But uh, you know, domestically here in the States, it made two and a half million and uh, internationally about 14 million. So all told, it ended up making a pretty decent chunk of change, a total adjusted gross in today's dollars of about 23 and a half million. So for a small budget film, I think these guys did a great job. One of the benefits of a film that's based on a true story that's that is centers on a real location that is quite so iconic and findable on a map <laughs> is that <laughs> is that we can discuss which road they actually uh, <laughs> actually drive up on and which angles of the shot that they took. And that is in fact what we have been doing uh, in uh, in the maps app on your your fair computer. You bring it up and you can see this dish. And first of all, it's giant. Oh yes. Yeah, we're I talking... guess it it makes sense that but you know, you can see it like practically from space. <laughs> if you knew that. Funny how that works. <laughs> it's it's actually I can I see a giant string <laughs> just float, floating up into space. <laughs> Uh, this is, of course, CSIRO Parks Radio Telescope that we're looking at in our lovely Google Maps. But it is fun. I mean, looking at, okay, which is the road that uh, Sam Neill drove on, the old Sam Neill, when he was on the wrong road and uh, yeah. trying to figure that out. But uh, yeah, it is definitely out in the middle of a sheep paddock. It is in the <laughs> middle of a sheep paddock, and it's still in the middle of a sheep paddock. I love that that is something that is carried on. I don't. I, I see. Maybe there are sheep. Maybe I'm actually looking at some sheep. Those little white dots. They could be. They could be. They could be. It's interesting. This dish was actually um, not designed to last as long as it has, but they have kept uh, taking care of it and adding to it and improving upon it. And it is still opening or still open and operating today. In fact, you can go to their website and you can visit it. It's open seven days a week. From 8.30 a.m. to 4.15 p.m., including public holidays. Well, it seems appropriate. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's right out there, uh, way out in the middle of uh, Australia. But it's definitely a place worth checking out. So you can uh, see the dish and learn a little about, a bit about astronomy and space exploration. I want a live broadcast from there. You think they would beam <laughs> us? <laughs> we could ask. Uh, I'd like to do that. I would like, a, I would like the next reel to be beamed into space. Uh, we should work on that. I want to do that. I'll get that. We're going to be the next Voyager gold record. <laughs> uh, and the reason they never chose. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Wave, all of alien life is waved off because they heard the next reel. <laughs> uh, I think it's probably time, Andy, uh, for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And you know the drill. We're gonna rank. Uh, we're gonna rank the dish next to a selection of movies from all the films that we've talked about on this very show. Filmo a filmo. You get to choose if you had a desert island, a television, and just the dish and one other film. Which one would you choose? It's gut wrenching. It's horrific, but we do it every week. Andy, you ready for this? No. What do you think it is? <laughs> I think it's our brother. <laughs> You're right. Of course it is. The yeah. Dish or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That's a tough one. I really I really enjoyed this. I did too. I'm going to pick The Dish. I think I am too. 
Wow. I know. I know. Let's do it. Let's do it. We're going to be rebels and we're going to move forward. There you go. The and dish we'll, or we'll forget cont- this conversation ever happened. <laughs> That's right. The dish or contagion. Mm. The How dish for hit me. you. It is it the dish? Yeah, it is. Is it because you laughed uh, just a little bit less in contagion? <laughs> I laughed just as much, oddly. <laughs> <laughs> I will join you in the dish. <laughs> that sounds like a fun place to sit. <laughs> All right, the dish. Oh, now it's getting to the point where it's hard. The dish or aliens. Totally aliens. Going with aliens. Aliens, yeah. Sorry, Sam. The dish or LA Confidential. LA, LA Confidential. Confidential. Yeah. Yep. Ah, uh, the dish or Zodiac. I'm going with Zodiac. All right. I will go Zodiac. Too. Two great period films. Yeah, really great period films. The Dish or Fargo. Hmm. I'm going Fargo. Pretty easily, it sounds like. I like this gives you no well, the moment Cone, of the pause. Cone, the Coen brothers already lost one to The Dish, so... <laughs> is that what it is? I'm You're not right. really. I'm not this really. is payback. <laughs> You're keeping score on behalf of the Cohen brothers, who I'm sure listen regularly. Uh, I know they do. Uh, I. Oh boy, I'm. You know, I'm so on the fence that I'll give it to you. I don't right. need. To, I don't need to introduce false drama. Okay. Uh, the dish or three amigos. The I, dish, please. I am three amigos. <laughs> I'm. I am. I am the dish. Although I love three amigos. Indeed. Let's do it. All right. One, One, two, two three, three. scissors. Ooh. Wow. Slice me up. Wow. <laughs> All right. That was a, I, that, I changed my mind at the very last minute, Andy. You almost won that. Oh. I, don't, I don't know. Better Angel stepped in. Well, you did good. The Dish or Scarlet Street. Oh. That's a, that's a pretty killer uh, Fritz Lang film there. Yep. Yep. That was good. Good film and a good series. Uh, I think I'm Scarlet Street. I think I am too. I'm really torn though. It's getting real close. And there it is. We are at number 64, 64. on our flick chart. Wow. Yes, indeed. Nice place for a little Australian film. Fantastic. Uh, and that's out of 267 movies. So this definitely uh, shot right up there. So uh, great movie. I'm glad we talked about it. Really tickles us. Where does that put you for your letterbox? You know, I feel like I'm a four star on this one. I'm a four and a half star on this one, Andy. Look at that. And that's a that is a, a half star deduction for old man makeup. That's the <laughs> old man makeup deduction. Oh, that's we great. need no framing device uh, and <laughs> the old man makeup. All right. Well, I think that's very fair for such a wonderful yeah. film. Wonderful film. Where do we go next in this little uh, this this little series? Well, it's uh, not quite as an uplifting story, although uh, it certainly is a gripping one. We're going to be heading on over to Africa and Somalia to uh, join the troops as they uh, figure out what to do when their Black Hawk goes down. We'll be talking about Ridley Scott's uh, wonderfully gripping war drama, Black Hawk Down. So it's literally uplifting for a time. When the Black Hawk is up, it is. It's up. It's uplifting. It's lifted. And then it's down. And then it's done. You see what I did there? Yes. Yeah. Cerebral humor. Pretty terrible. You know, it's uh, completely strange, uh, but uh, just to mention it, we happen to be recording this on the anniversary of the date when things went down in, in Mogadishu. Next next week? Or no, right today, right today, now? Today, when we're recording this show, oh, October geez. 3rd. Yeah. Boy, you're Crazy. a downer. Way to, way to <laughs> kill the mood. <laughs> 
Well, I, I'll take it. This was a really fun film. I think I'll recover. And uh, thanks for thanks for shoehorning it into the series, Andy. This was a this was a great catch. Yeah, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad we you finally got to see it. Yeah, me too. Now I gotta go to bed. All right. Well, I'm off to dance to our national anthem. Andy, you know, I told you I was going to get mad. And uh, during here it comes. <laughs> Amazon giveth, you know. As Amazon always doeth. I was, uh, I read this and I was frustrated. A customer wrote this in uh, on Amazon in 2001. They watched this on DVD. A not particularly funny comedy about the moon landing in 69, focusing on the Parks Radio Telescope and the eggheads who work there. Really? Eggheads? Mean. Mm. Who knows how much of it is true? Some reviewers here insist it's basically fiction, which I rather doubt. Clearly, the big radio dish on the sh- in the sheep farm in Parks, uh, New South Wales, brought us the first images of the men walking on the moon. Why nitpick? The movie is at least gently educational for most Americans who probably never realized Australia's contribution to one of humanity's seminal moments. Problem is, the dish doesn't do much of anything else besides gently educate. Once again, we have this cute, the cute locals, always bumbling, always well-meaning, and always irritatingly, unrealistically eccentric. This type of movie has practically become a genre for the arthouse crowd. I call it the Ned Divine Syndrome. The tone of the thing wavers between tearful pride and bunny rabbit cuteness, not a happy combination, and without well-drawn characters, Sam Neill's stoically mushy performance and Patrick Warburton's mannered performance do not mitigate what are, after all, very light sketches. The lack of focus is only more evident. Ah, so... That divine syndrome. I know. So, so mad. I disagree. Dare stand to agree to disagree. Well, I stand with you. Thank you. I have the only one star review on Amazon for the dish from July 13th, 2015. No plot, but a nice gentle movie. This is DP who says, not much of a story here. Mm. And not much of a review here either, DP. (laughs) You know what's funny about it? I found myself really uh, delighting in the fact that it, this film, like, it leads up to uh, all of the intensity of the film leads up to moments of them watching TV or listening to the radio. <laughs> was like, that was all the drama. That's funny in itself, DP and a customer. Come yes, on. Yes, it is. Here, here. Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season six, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. No, hold on. Hold on. No, it's my turn. Ah, damn. First up, 
disease films. Uh, okay. Uh, well, there's the Omega Man and the Andromeda Strain. Um, oh, and Blindness. One more. One more. Um, oh, Children of Men? That's the one. Okay, how about It's Real Life, Jack? Oh, that's easy. Black Hawk Down, Seabiscuit. Betty Davis. Uh, uh, the Little Foxes. Um, whatever Happened to Baby Jane, now Voyager. Okay, this one's easy. The Godfather Trilogy. <laughs> well, The Godfather. That was so good. Well, we've covered lots of great movies that started out as books. Books like The Danish Girl, Certain Women. Howl's Moving Castle or The Black Stallion. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.